Welcome to episode 161 of This Week in Linux, recorded live on July 24th, 2021. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. This week's episode has a lot of stuff. We've got distro news, app news, and even a little bit of drama. So in the distro section, we're going to talk about Debian has announced their release date for Debian 11. Also, CentOS Hyperscale Experimental Live ISOs are available now. And we're going to talk about the uh, Fedora Nest or Nest with Fedora event that is happening pretty soon. And we also got some drama to talk about, the one that everybody is probably expecting and maybe even a little tired of, and that is the Audacity Saga Continues. Then we're going to talk about some really interesting stuff from Adobe, as in they're uh, helping to fund the, the Blender development, which is pretty interesting, especially since they make stuff that's a little bit of a competition with Blender. Also, Netflix is getting into video games, maybe. We'll talk about that later on. And we've even got a lot of app news from Handbrake, uh, Natifier, WordPress, all sort that. Well, technically, WordPress is a self-hosted thing, not, a, not an app. And we got a lot of stuff to discuss on this episode. So all that and so much more coming up right now on Twill, your weekly source for Linux good news. First in the show this week, we're going to start with Debian because the Debian developers are, are actually have announced that they are planning for a August 14th release for Debian 11 Bullseye. Now, this is actually kind of quick in comparison to the previous things because the, the full freeze was only last week and typically that takes a, a few months for the new releases to come out after those full freezes. So it's, it's interesting in terms of that. But also we're going to go into more details in depth in the future when, we, when it does release, so we're going to break down what's all different. But first up, real quick, Debian 11 is built from the Linux 5.10 LTS kernel, and it has a ton of package updates and other improvements You know, since the uh, two years that Debian 10 has been released. But for those who are you know, not familiar, Debian is, it releases every two years or so for their stable releases. So it's not the most up-to-date distribution. It's more of a foundational style. But if you are... Waiting for the latest release of Debian, you don't have to wait much longer, just a couple of weeks, a few weeks anyway. August 14th is the planned release date, so mark your calendars. Next in the show, we're going to be talking about a new release, some experimental live ISOs from CentOS for the Hyperscale edition of CentOS. So previously, we covered the Hyperscale workstation in Twill 158. So a quick refresher on what the Hyperscale is, is uh, people with large-scale CentOS deployments, such as uh, Twitter, Facebook, and others, are bringing their work together in a open collaboration with the community for with inside of CentOS Stream, which creates this new uh, group creating the uh, CentOS Hyperscale workstation and stuff like that. So Hyperscale adds an updated kernel currently at 5.12, which will be updated uh, also again later on because of the whole Hyperscale part of it. Uh, updated systemd, which is currently at uh, 248.5. That's a big number version. And other various backports. Uh, notably, the CentOS Stream Hyperscale adds ButterFS support and uses it by default, which is very, very cool. So I'm, I'm a big fan of ButterFS. There's I My distribution that I use has ButterFS. We're going to talk about another distro later on in the show that also has ButterFS. So you might, you might see a trend on this show at some point, including the uh, with transparent ZSTD or Z standard compression, like Fedora does it, 
uh, will be in the CentOS Stream Hyperscale Workstation Editions and stuff like that. Now, this re refresh also has a number, a number of fixes and improvements in addition to that. And one of the things that I was really happy to see is that they now have a new experimental KDE Plasma variant of the Hyperscale Workstation options, which so that is very cool. And it has a KDE Plasma 5.22 that was backported from Fedora into the Apple, which is the Enterprise Extra Packages. Uh, so if you want to have a, you know, a enterprise-grade workstation, but you want to have the, you know, a more up-to-date approach, then you can check out the uh, CentOS Hyperscale Editions, especially the one with the KDE Plasma, because that's I'm a big fan of Plasma. So there you go. There's also a GNOME Edition as well, if you want to check that out. We'll have links to all of this if you'd like to learn more about it in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have some interesting news from Blender and Adobe, and that is that Blender has announced that Adobe has become a corporate gold member level donor in the Blender Development Fund. So for those who don't know, the Blender Development Fund accepts donations to support activities like bug fixing, code reviews, technical documentation, and onboarding and other stuff, as, as and the corporate uh, member stuff is directly for supporting the core Blender development, as well as other things that are approved by the Blender.org uh, organization. So, the, as far as if you want, if you're curious, the gold corporate member level means that they are uh, donating thirty thousand euros per year. And now, just to be, keep in mind that becoming a sponsor of the Blender Development Fund does not give a company any influence whatsoever or control over any of the Blender development. It's not like they're investing in it. They're more of like donating to it. Now, they are going to get attention from the Blender team in terms of like, you know, feedback on the roadmap and that sort of stuff by becoming a, a sponsor, but they're not having any control. So for those who are worried about, you know, Adobe becoming somehow involved, you don't have to worry about it. They're not getting any kind of power like that. They're more of joining the likes of Unity 3D, Epic Games, Ubisoft, Intel, and many others that are helping to make Blender even better than it already is. And Blender is a very, very important project. It is an awesome open source uh, project, and it's been around for l longer than open source has. So it is a critical piece and a great example of what you can do with open source and free software, thanks to uh, the amazing development work at Blender. So uh, Adobe also announced that their uh, Substance 3D tool is has a add-on for Blender called the Substance for Blender add-on which allows you to take uh, substance files, the, uh, the .sbsar files, into Blender scenes, and then you can tweak all of the relevant like, um, parameters for the different materials and the, you know, the textures and stuff like that for 3D assets. So for those who don't know, Adobe's Substance 3D application uh, gives users access to uh, tools and stuff like that to create, capture, and, cre and uh, build textures for 3D assets. And or also to compose and render 3D scenes, so it's it's very it's kind of a interesting because in addition to Adobe doing this, they're also since they uh, they uh, acquired Substance, it's now a competitor to Adobe. So Adobe and Blender are a competitor, so it's really interesting that they're doing it. And we got a quote from both the Adobe team and as well as the founder for Blender. So first off, we're going to start with the Adobe uh, VP of 3D and Immersive. Uh, they says that we are thrilled Adobe is joining the Blender Development Fund to help ensure the longevity and success of the dynamic open source community. Also, uh, Ton Rosendahl, the Blender founder, says, 
This is a great step forward. It's a prime example of the industry increasingly accepting to work with free slash open source software. Now, this is very, very cool. It's very interesting that they're doing it because they do compete with Blender in a few ways. And if you'd like to learn more about this announcement or just want to check out Blender yourself, I'll have links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database as a service, or DBAAS, or as I like to say it, a DBAS. With managed MongoDB, you can focus more on building scalable, high-performance apps and less on maintaining the database, which is very important. Uh, simply, you offload your MongoDB administration to DigitalOcean and let them handle the provisioning, managing, scaling, updates, backups, and security of your clusters. DigitalOcean built this service in partnership with MongoDB Inc. as well, so that together they can ensure that you get the latest access, well, access to the latest releases of MongoDB's document database as they become available. And as a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash dln dash mongo. Again, that's do.co slash dln dash mongo to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new managed MongoDB. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about Audacity, because it's back in the news. The Audacity saga continues. Previously on The Muse and the Restless, at this point, it kind of feels like a soap opera storyline a little bit, don't you think? So last time we talked about Audacity on episode 159, we discussed the odd wording that was found in the desktop privacy policy of the audio editor. We discussed what it all was then in, like, in a lot of detail, so check out episode 159 of Twill for the full breakdown. Let's do a brief recap of what happened in the last installment of the Audacity saga. So, they added policies to the uh, personal, the uh, desktop privacy policy that where they were talking about how they were doing personal data collection and also send that data to law enforcement agencies upon request, and even a piece about not being usable by mon minors under the age of 13. So, as you might expect, this did not sit well with the community. In fact, this misstep was the catalyst for some forks to be made. And since then, Muse Group has responded with some changes, and even an apology of sorts. The developers say that they are deeply sorry for the significant uh, lapse of communication caused by the original privacy policy document. And they also provide a summary of the changes to this the, the privacy policy document that they've changed since then. So we're going to talk about the five main changes as described by the Muse Group. So they say, and I quote, Phrasing has been adjusted to remove ambu ambiguity and or aid in transparency, in particular that we do not collect any additional information for law enforcement or uh, any other purpose. Uh, they also go on to say, we have explained the purpose of the two networking features, error reporting and update checking. We have removed the provision that discourages children under the age of 13 from using Audacity. Good which made no sense while I was there in the first place. We have taken steps to ensure that we never store a full IP address. We now truncate it before hashing or discard it entirely. And we have reflected this change in the privacy policy document. And the last uh, ch big change that they made, they say, and I quote, we have made some changes to how we process error reports to ensure that we never store any potentially identifiable information. Now, before we go any further on this topic, I just want to say 
that I'm not even remotely close to a lawyer. So anything I say related to this topic should be taken uh, as an opinion and with the weight as merely some guy on the internet. So let's talk about more stuff that they mentioned in some quotes that they have in this announcement for the changes of the policy. They say, and I quote, we drafted the original privacy policy as legal text. We appreciate that for our community as well as our users. Much of the phrasing in the policy produced more questions than answers. From now on, we will provide context for changes we make to the policy in a user-friendly way. Part of the problem with the original privacy policy is the terminology. Now, in my opinion, I don't think it was the terminology. It was the kind of excessive and seemingly arbitrary nature of some of the items in the policy that's more accurate, such as the discouraging those under 13 from using the application. I, don't, I, think, that's, I think that's more problematic, you know, not the terminology. Uh, they also go on to say, there are terms we are legally required to use in order to ensure compliance with the GDPR and the CCPA. The best example of this is the catchphrase, the catch-all phrase, personal information, a non-specific term that understandably raises concerns for regular readers. Now, uh, to continue on with the quote, they say that to provide an example of where, where use of the term personal information is unavoidable, in section 5.1, there is a line under data security that states, we use appropriate technical and organizational measures to protect the personal information that we collect and process. Now, they also say, please note that an IP address alone counts as personal information, and the steps we take to anonymize uh, it count as processing. When you see the line in 4.1, we do not store or share any personal information. This refers to the fact that while we see uh, collect the full IP address, we do not store it, and more about this below in the document, so I'll have that listed as a link in the show notes if you want to check it out. But uh, this is interesting because to me, again, not a lawyer-y person, but it makes me curious because is it still required to be considered personal information if this, this IP is not complete? You know, if you're getting it for the country data and that sort of stuff, is it really personal information? And if you're not storing it, you're, is it counting and collecting? Because when you connect to a website, your IP address is shown to that website regardless. So you, it doesn't mean that everyone is collecting that IP just because you connected to the website. So it's kind of... Anyway, I'm genuinely asking here. I, I don't know. You know, to my non-lawyery mind, uh, it would make sense to me that if the identifiable information is not stored, then it wouldn't be collected. I don't know. For anybody who does know this stuff, please let me know in the comments. Uh, to continue on, some more quotes. They say that the most unclear and damaging part of the original document stated that we collect personal information necessary for law enforcement, litigation, and authorities' request, if any. Now, they follow up with that to say that, to be clear... Any organization, if ordered by the court, is required to cooperate with an investigation, and doing otherwise is considered to be an obstruction of justice. Uh, so these are not, these are the are not the rules we create; these are the rules we require to follow. However, we would only be able to provide the specific information mentioned in the privacy policy and nothing more. In addition, they say the steps we have taken to anonymize all stored data means that it would be of extremely limited use to anyone. Now, this is true in terms of like the compelling by a court. You must provide data if you are compelled by a court. Um, but there are some other examples where you don't necessarily have to be have to provide data if you don't collect it in the first place. 
So you could simply just not store the information and therefore you don't have to worry about giving it to them. So you could take a look, for example, at some uh, VPN services. Uh, there have been cases where some VPN companies have been compelled by a court to provide any and all logs for how their service was used by an individual that was in relation to the case or whatever. Uh, but they chose to not store any logs in the first place. Thus, the compulsion to provide data didn't matter because there was nothing to provide in the first place. So it seems to me that Muse Group is saying that they are required to collect data or something. I mean, you are required to provide that data if you collect it, but if you, you're not compelled to collect it. You know, you're not required to do that. So I don't understand what they mean here. Again, I'm just some guy on the internet, so I could be completely wrong about this sort of stuff. I don't think I am necessarily about this part, but, you know, let me know in the comments what you think. Uh, but also a quick note, this does not address anything related to the Contributor License Agreement, the CLA. That we, there was an issue we talked about in episode uh, 159 and 153 of Twill. This, that's still an issue. So while this has been, you know, a, they've, they've changed their uh, wording on the privacy policy and that sort of stuff, and they've also, uh, you know, somewhat of an apology in regards to it, it doesn't really change the feeling of the community uh, based on these, these, this update. The Muse Group is also not only in hot water over Audacity. There's also, they've seemed to have stepped in it again with MuseScore recently and sending a takedown emails to uh, someone who created a tool to download data from the MuseScore API. On one side, Muse Group is saying that the this tool is violating copyright of their partners by connecting without an account on the service. And there were also some words shared that were, you know, some have interpreted as threats to the developer. Uh, I'll let you decide on that. I'll have links in the show notes for more details on that stuff if you want to. Uh, one person from Muse Group said that the tool used the private API to get the data, which is rather surprising to me because if the API is private, how can it be used without an account? That doesn't sound very private to me. I mean, you know you make the API, right? You could just block how it's used from this kind of tool. Just a thought. Anyway... So what does the future hold for Muse Group, Audacity, and all this sort of stuff? Often I say we'll have to wait and see because typically that's what we have to do. But it seems the community has decided that they're done waiting since the forks don't look to be slowing down at all. And I think this is very interesting as a topic because, you know, Muse Group had three scandals within two months of acquiring Audacity. And it's, it's you know, it doesn't seem like they're stopping in that. They need to have some level of you know, communication, you know, reset. And they need to think about what they're talking about, what they're doing with the, the things that they're announcing before they announce them. And then maybe then they wouldn't have these kinds of backlash. I don't know. But I don't know what will happen going forward. But it's probably fair to say that the community is no longer an amused group. Get it? Get it? Anyway. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, then I invite you to check out the other episodes of the show where I discuss the CLA, the original privacy policy, and more, because there is a lot to cover in the Audacity saga, and there's no way I could put it in this, this the whole thing in this show. So I have links to each episode where we talked about each thing as they happened. Um, and if you're interested in learning more, I'll have other links as well in the show notes to um, you know learn about the Audacity saga, I guess. <laughs> anyway, links in the show notes. Up next in the show is some interesting news from Netflix and that they might be getting into the video game streaming space. Now, this is interesting because a lot of people are looking at the existing ones and kind of going, what's the point? But 
I do think this is really interesting because Netflix was the pioneer of streaming services. So it's very, very curious to see what happens with this. So Netflix announced that they have hired uh, the Mike Verdu, who's a former VP at Facebook Reality Labs, as well as uh, used to work with EA prior to that. And he will be the vice president of game development at Netflix. They haven't exactly specified what that means exactly, but uh, there's a lot of people talking about how this might be an indication that they will be doing a games uh, streaming service. They also say that they're putting it in like their own category. I'm very curious to see what happens with this because you know Netflix being in this space is kind of fitting because they've they've been doing a lot of deals with various different gaming companies. They've even started doing like. Uh, shows based on different games and that sort of stuff. So I'm curious to see what happens with this in general, but also because it's Netflix, you know, because Netflix, like I said, is the pioneer for streaming services and maybe they could do it better than the rest. Who knows? And I'm also curious if I can get the service without having to pay any extra for a Netflix account upgrade. That'd be great. Anyway, I'm curious what you think about this particular topic. Leave me a comment below or on the forum. I'll have that linked in the show notes as well, if you'd like to use the DLN forum at dealinforum.com, the, the specific thread linked in the show notes, you could just go to the thing I just said. Let me know what you think in the comments below. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about an event that is coming up very soon called Nest with Fedora. So this is a virtual version of the Fedora Project's annual contributor conference called Flock to Fedora. So what happens typically is that people would go to locations that are agreed upon in Fedora and all the contributors uh, basically meet to discuss Fedora and also build stuff together and that sort of stuff. There's workshops and all sorts of things. And in this case, it's not flocking to Fedora because, well, obviously the traveling part. So instead, you're going to be nesting or, you know, you're going to visit the Fedora nest by, you know, doing a virtual version of the conference. Now, this will be comprised with comprised of three days of content, workshops, games, and also socializing with other people who are Fedorans. There, there's no admission to participate in the event if you want to. There are free; the tickets are free to join and just do. You do but you do need to register for an account to, you know, basically they they, they know how many people are going to be there for the different uh, projects and workshops and what and that sort of stuff. So uh, I'll have a link in the show notes below if you'd like to uh, nest with Fedora. Up next in the show is the 1.0 release of Firewall D. For those not familiar, Firewall D was started by Red Hat a decade ago for managing Linux firewall functionality with NetFilter. Now, it doesn't sound like it's a big deal because it's the 1.0 version and it's been a long time, so it might seem like it's not, but it actually is fantastic that Firewall D has hit the 1.0. So Firewall D offers various functions for packet filtering, network address translation, uh, port translation, and also provides the functionality to control network packets like incoming, outgoing, and forwarded packets. Like Firewall D is very, very cool. And I'm just really happy to see that it hits 1.0 because the, well, Firewall D uses the concepts of zones and services, whereas IP tables uses uh, chains and rules. But, you know, well, what's the difference? I, I hear you asking. Well, not to go into too deep into the weeds, let's just say that Firewall D offers a much more flexible and easier to use way of handling the firewall management compared to IP tables. Anyone who is familiar with IP tables at all knows it's been notorious for years as being incredibly complex method for firewall management. So a solution to improve this is very much welcomed. 
because uh, they're using it's using NetFilter and NF tables instead of IP tables, which is a, a very welcome change. Uh, Firewall D 1.0 comes with significant changes also, including dropping of Python 2 support, adding support for intrazone forwarding by default, NAT rules being moved to INET family, and deprecating the older IP tables backend, and a lot more. So if you'd like to learn more about Firewall D, I'll have links in the show notes for the latest release of the 1.0 for Firewall D. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com DLN. Bitwarden is a password manager, which is software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, Bitwarden provides you with tools to store your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to. And you also can have access to your data across many different types of devices, such as web browser extensions, mobile apps, desktop applications, and even on the command line. In addition, Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices, so you know you're the only person with access to your data. And that is very important that it does it locally so that you know that when it goes to their servers, it's in a giant mountain of gibberish and only you have the key to decrypt it. So go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started. And did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can, but I also think you want to check out their premium accounts because you can get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more. And you get all of this for less than a dollar per month. That's right, for just $10 per year, you can get your account and have all these great features, and you can also check out their family accounts. They have family accounts, organizational accounts, uh, business, uh, enterprise accounts, all sorts of great stuff. That The family account is, is fantastic because you can basically create it for your parents, your spouse, your kids, your siblings, whatever you want. You can make it easy for them to set up an account for them so that you can help them learn to use Bitwarden and also get, you know, get used to using a password manager because, you know, it's a very important thing and it's an amazing thing to have, but not everybody is comfortable getting started with with a password manager and that what that's what makes Bitwarden amazing is because you can create a family account and make it easier for people to get started. And with the business accounts, you can actually create an account for your employees, and they have they, they can store their personal accounts as well as access to organizational vaults at the same time. So it's it's just fantastic. So make so make the smart move like many of the community community have, and go to bitwarden.com/dln to check out their their awesome account. And uh, you can get all sorts of stuff, whether it's a an individual account, business account, family account, all of that's available at bitwarden.com/dln. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring this week in Linux. Earlier in the show, we talked about Debian Linux, and now we're going to talk about a distribution that is based on Debian, and that is Kaizen Linux. I think that's how you're supposed to say it. Uh, Kaizen Linux has released 1.7. Now, this is a Debian-based rolling release distribution, and this is really cool because I, earlier I talked about how we we're going to mention a ButterFS distribution, and here we are. Kaizen Linux has introduced uh, improved support for ButterFS. They've also removed the NOAA time option to allow for the deletion of snapshots, which uh, replaced by the uh, RELA time option, which is basically it's better for uh, limiting disk writes. And they've also removed some things like uh, GKSU in favor of Polkit for the graphical tool launchers. They've also updated the Linux kernel to 5.10.46. Uh, and if you're interested in checking out a distribution that is a rolling release based on Debian that uses ButterFS, then check out Kaizen Linux. I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of Handbrake with 1.4.0. 
So what is Handbrake? Handbrake is an open source video transcoder, which is available for Linux, Mac, and Windows. Handbrake takes videos you already have and transcodes them to make new videos that work on various different types of devices. So not all devices can play all formats. So Handbrake makes it possible to uh, make support for your mobile phone, tablet, TV, game console, or really anything that practically anything that runs modern video format. So for example, you can take content from a DVD and make it playable on your phone by using Handbrake. Now you may have be familiar, you may have heard of uh, FFmpeg, and you might be wondering what's the difference between Handbrake and FFmpeg. Well, FFmpeg is a command line only tool and Handbrake is a GUI application. In fact though, Handbrake leverages FFmpeg as well as X264 and X265 to perform these transcodes. So they're basically, they work together. So you can look at uh, Handbrake as a way to have a GUI approach to FFmpeg. FFmpeg is awesome, but it's, it's a little complicated. And okay, very complicated. Handbrake is still somewhat complicated, but it's a lot easier to use. Uh, Handbrake 1.4 also has some new features. So the Handbrake engine now supports native 10 and 12-bit encodes, including HDR10 metadata pass-through, improvements to hardware encoding functionality for Intel's QuickSync, AMD's VCN, and Qualcomm's ARM devices. Also, they had added support for Apple Silicon, or the Apple M1 Max. Uh, they've added support for Qualcomm ARM64 devices running Windows, and they've also had made improvements to the subtitle handling, as well as some UI and UX improvements for all the different platforms. And uh, if, you, if you're interested in checking out a really good transcoding tool, check out Handbrake. It is fantastic. And it will, if you need to do this, especially if you need to do it a lot, Handbrake will save you a ton of time. So check it out. I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is a really interesting application that I can't wait to try called CUDA Text. So CUDA Text is a cross-platform text editor written in Object Pascal. So this is an open source project and it is something that I am have always been looking for, which is an open source alternative to Sublime Text. Now they don't specify exactly that that's what it is, but it reminds me a lot of Sublime Text with the, the functionality it has. There's also the shortcuts are very similar to Sublime Text. So I can't wait to try it out. Unfortunately, I didn't have time this week to do so once I found it, but I wanted to let you know and put it on the show in case you are like myself and want to you know, try out an open source alternative to Sublime. Now, I have been using Sublime for a long time, many years. It's my favorite text editor thus far because it has a ton of great features. It has uh, tons of plugins, lots of syntax highlighting. It has code folding and uh, different multi-selections and multi-carats and you know, a nice find and replace functionality with regular expressions and all that sort of stuff. And it also has a command palette with being able to activate certain features and snippets and, you know, that sort of stuff. It's including like a mini map and so much more. And CUDA text has those as well, which is what is the reason why I'm so excited to talk about it, because it seems to be a fairly well-built, structured uh, uh, alternative to Sublime Text. And the fact that it's open source has me very, very interested. So in addition to all the stuff I just listed, it also has access for plugins and linters and uh, code tree parsers and uh, support for external tools with like Python add-ons and so many more. And the multiple cursors thing that is one of my favorite things about Sublime Text is available inside of CUDA Text, including the same sh uh, shortcut functionalities that come with Sublime. So 
Uh, I can't wait to try this out because there's so much cool stuff in uh, this that this, that overlaps with Sublime that it has a potential to be, my, be our, an open source replacement for me. So uh, if you're curious about a open source alternative to Sublime Text, then I'll have a link for CUDA Text in the show notes for you to check out. And yeah, I can't wait to let you know about my opinion on this, which uh, maybe I'll do a video on it. Maybe I'll talk about it on Destination Linux. Who knows? We'll see. But uh, yeah, as a person who's a big fan of Sublime Text and a bigger fan of open source, I cannot wait to try this out. Up next in the show is an application I wanted to talk to you about because I have talked about it on the show before, but they have released the version 45.0, and that is Native Fire. Native Fire is a command line tool to create a desktop app from any website with minimal configuration. Now, you can customize it quite a bit, but you don't really have to. It will automatically pull in like an icon. Uh, it will tr retrieve the app icon and also the name of it when you run the command to create it. It also has JavaScript and CSS injection and many, many more features. Uh, I have used uh, Natifier in the past. And what's really cool about it is that it allows you to create your own Electron app, basically, which if you're not familiar, Electron is like, it's basically like a framework uh, that's powered by the Chromium uh, engine under the hood. And it also creates an ex executable for whatever uh, dish, whatever system or platform that you tell it to do. So you can build uh, Windows apps, Mac OS apps, uh, Linux apps. And I, I, I think Natifier has a lot of potential. And if you ever have a need for a specific web app in the form of a desktop app, then check out Natifier. I have links in the show notes. Now, I've been using Firefox container tabs for a very long time, and I switched away from Natifier when uh, I found the container tabs. But there are sometimes, sometimes, I kind of wish that there was an individual app for a specific thing. You know, but at the same time, I still love the Firefox container tabs. So, you know, do with that with what you will. If you want to learn more about Natifier or you want to try it out for yourself, I'll have links for you to check out in the show notes. Up next in the show and the last topic for today is WordPress 5.8. Now, this is a self-hosted website content management system or CMS. And we don't typically talk about self-hosted projects in this show, but if that's something you would like me to talk about more, please let me know in the comments below or on the DLN forum at dlnforum.com. So WordPress 5.8 has a lot of improvements under the hood, and they've also done a lot of significant changes in this particular thing, which will actually change the way that a lot of people make themes and even just make WordPress websites because there's a lot of changes in this one. Now, WordPress 5.8 is codenamed Tatum, which of course is named after the actor Channing Tatum because they're big fans of him. Okay, it's not actually named, I don't know if they're fans or not, but it's not actually named after him. It's named in the honor of Art Tatum, which is a legendary jazz pianist. So there you go. WordPress 5.8 brings a ton of changes and enhancements. First of all, they've added support for the image format WebP. They've also done some interesting things for the colorization and stylizing of images. So you can do a, a new filter system which has a dual tone filters and you can do black and white filters filters. You can do, you know, custom color filters and just modify the image directly on the page without having to do it uh, on in an app, an image editor and whatever. But I think the biggest and most important update for this release is the FSE or the full site editing functionality. Now, what does this mean? Well, uh, from the WordPress is basically the, the users can now alter any element of your site with the block editor. Now, this includes like the header, the footer, the sidebar, all these sorts of things. 
And this is a pretty impressive thing because they are changing the way that uh, themes are made. It's changing the way that uh, websites powered by WordPress are made because the functionality is so vast in terms of making it possible to do all sorts of stuff without having to do any code yourself. So this has a lot of potential to be changing a lot. If you already have a WordPress install, you um, might not have support because it depends on your theme if it has support for FSE or not. It'll probably come pretty soon, depending on how uh, up-to-date your your themes are. Though the, the biggest security issue with people using WordPress is typically that they'll have a, a theme that they don't update because they're worried about it breaking, and uh, that could be an issue. However, this could help solve that because it can make it where the header and footer and stuff like that is not powered by the theme, but instead powered by the, the FSE or the full site editing uh, block editor system, which is really cool. And that's really the reason why it's such an interesting change in WordPress 5.8. Also, they've made a lot of enhancements and changes. They have a new uh, widget screen and they've also enhanced the customizer, which if you're not familiar, the customizer is the way where you customize your theme and they've actually made it giving more features and stuff like you can uh, add blocks in the new uh, widget area as well as the live preview through the customizer. So many cool things in there. And uh, there's so much more, including a template editor where you can build your own templates for pages and posts and that sort of stuff to reuse it. Anyway, if you'd like to check out uh, WordPress 5.8, I'll have links in the show notes. There's a lot more that we don't have time to t- discuss, like the the new pattern directory system that they have for block patterns and all sorts of stuff. I'll have that all linked in the show notes. Uh, but also be sure to make sh- if you decide to upgrade to 5.8, which you should if you already have an install, that you want to make sure you run updates for WordPress, like, you know, create backups of your files and your databases and your themes and your plugins and all that sort of stuff, because you you definitely need to have a backup. Always have a backup before you update anything like this. Also, I'll have links in the show notes for the latest release of that. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show, we have many ways you can do so by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. You can find places like we have uh, ways for contributions like PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. And if you do decide to become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium, in the skybox of the recording stadium, actually, to discuss stuff between topics or just hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post-show. You can also support the channel and the show by ordering the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to dealinstore.com. You can get these. This shirt is basically a design to convey the message that whether or not you know Linux is there, it probably is. And that's why it has tux blended into the background of the shirt. Also, if you want to get the This Week in Linux t-shirt that I'm wearing in the show, that is also available at dealinstore.com, as well as many, many more things like uh, mugs, hats, hoodies, stickers, uh, backpacks, aprons. In fact, if you want to get the apron, you can get the twill apron so you can twill while you grill and other things. Go to dealinstore.com to check that out. And if you're while you're there, you can check out all the other great stuff at the Destination Linux Network, like the Destination Linux podcast that I'm also a co-host of, and the Hardware Addicts podcast that I'm also a co-host of. Both of those are on the destinationlinux.network, as well as the Pseudo Show, Deal and Extend, uh, GameSphere, and so much more. The Fedora podcast is there now, so check it out, destinationlinux.network. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week by going to dlnlive.com.
Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news.